Philippians chapter 1, if you have your Bibles, turn there. Uh, we are in the last four verses of Philippians chapter 1 and the, in the first four verses of Philippians chapter 2. And so we're going to get out of chapter 1 today and into the beginning of chapter 2. And uh, just as a review, let me remind you, Paul is writing this letter to a group of people in Philippi. They're known as the Philippians. And so uh, this is a town where he uh, was there for a while. He planted a church. This is probably roughly 60 AD. And he's writing this from prison to a group of people that he said he loved them with the affection of Jesus. And so the first question is, what is the affection of Jesus? It means that he loved them literally to death. When we think about the affection of Jesus, the affection of Jesus is this. You on your best day could never make it to God on your own. And so Jesus took all of your unworthiness, all of your sin, all of your struggle, and he took it on the cross. And so he took it all the way to the death. That is the love of Jesus, a sacrificial agape kind of love. And so he's saying, listen, I love you with the affection of Jesus. So he's saying, I love you to death. And that was in verse eight of week one. And then last week we saw this bold proclamation in verse 21 where he says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And remember, the question is, who says that? right? Who talks like that? Who says, okay, to live, if I'm going to live and I'm going to be in my flesh and bones body, it's going to be in Christ. But if I die, that will be even better. What he's saying is death is not the final word for me, that we are all eternal beings and we either are living in the flesh and blood in our bodies or when we die, we are eternal bodies and what we do with Jesus while we're here determines what will happen in eternity for each of us. And so uh, Paul was wrapped up in living out the purposes of Christ, whether in prison chains or whether he was facing persecution from the culture on the outside. And he was living for something eternal, something bigger than himself. And so we see that throughout the passage, right? Because I keep saying, who says that? It's somebody that is seeing things from a different perspective than I often do. I don't know about you, but for me, that's the truth. And so uh, as we move into the next section of the letter, now Paul is going to challenge the Philippians to live a life worthy of Jesus, both in and out of the church. Live a life worthy of Jesus. And so as I was preparing this week, here's a phrase that kept popping around in my head. The world is watching. The world is watching. So what does that mean? That is not a fear-based statement. It's just a fact. If you say you follow Jesus, the world's watching you. Your friends are watching you. They're watching you to see how you are gonna respond to the hard things of life. And it's not just that we say we follow Jesus, but it's how we follow Jesus, right? So talk is cheap. We'll see that in the passage this morning. Really, the, the fruit of your life, how you follow Jesus is what people are watching. And so the U.S., uh, the church in the U.S. has taken a huge hit in our culture because we are not generally known for love, for joy, for peace, for hope but we're known for hate, anger, self-righteousness, judgment. 
compromise, scandal. So you think about that. The cultural norms are, are really being lived out as much inside the church as outside the church. It means that the culture has infiltrated the church. So the, the church is not having influence on culture. The culture is largely having influence on the church. And that's why it's been rendered largely ineffective. Is that fair to say? Um, here's uh, how I know that. Uh, divorce is rampant both inside the church and out. Pornography is rampant both inside the church and out. Body image issues are rampant both inside the church and out. Alcohol and drug use and abuse are rampant both inside the church and out. And followers of Jesus tend to medicate their pain just like the world does. And so I want you to think about this. So maybe you grew up in a church that is going to list those things. Divorce is wrong. Check. Drug and alcohol uh, abuse is wrong. Check. Pornography, wrong. Check. But here's what I want you to know. All of those things are very simply symptoms of a bigger problem. And so we've got to stop just uh, managing symptoms and get to the root of what's really going on. Because here's the truth of the matter. If you're sitting here this morning and you have a pornography problem, it's not a pornography problem. It's a loving Jesus problem, right? If you're on the brink of divorce, don't know, just know this. It's not that you have a marriage problem. You just kind of have a loving Jesus problem. And, And we'll see as we move through this passage today that as we are, are, are really, we've been rendered ineffective to the world we're called to reach, there's hope. There's hope. Here's the good news. We have never had a greater opportunity in American culture to change the way that people think about Jesus in the church. You know why? Because I don't think that our nation has ever had a lower opinion of the church. We literally have nowhere to go but up. Right? So congratulations, we've arrived. And so what it means is that we've got this incredible opportunity to spiritually flip the script and begin to actually live out what we believe. And so how you respond to suffering shows what you believe about Jesus. He's already been talking about it all through chapter one. Um, he's gonna talk about it again in chapter three. I mean, the theme of suffering goes through, throughout this passage and I'll, I'll hit you with something in a little bit, but, but here's the thing, how you suffer matters. It actually tells the world the size of your God. It tells the world the size of your Jesus. How you suffer matters. St. Francis of Assisi is often credited with saying, preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. Has anybody heard that before? Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words. And so here's the thought behind that phrase. The product of your life should match your rhetoric, right? That the product, the fruit of your life should match up with what you say. So let me put it another way. Practice what you preach. Has anybody ever heard that? Practice what you preach, but even more pointed, Practice what you preach even when things don't go your way. I think we're pretty good at practicing what we preach in peacetime. 
But man, we get lulled, right, into a false sense of security, and then things go south and we check out. But the proof, the fruit of your life actually is shown when things don't go the way you want them to or the way you, you think they should. And so Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. It's not a matter of talk, but of power. He's saying, listen, talk is cheap. If the product of your life is not the power of God, then you're probably not in a real relationship with God. Because it's the God of the universe is coursing through your veins. That's what we believe, right? As far as of Jesus that we've received, the spirit of the risen Jesus inside of us. If we really believe that, then there should be power just coming off of us. It's why we say wherever we go, the kingdom goes with us because we believe that we are bringing the power of God with us wherever we go. And so if there's no power in your life, then I'm not sure who you gave your life to because the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. Talk is cheap. It's a matter of power and that speaks to the fruit of your life, right? So we're gonna walk through this passage uh, starting in verse 27 of chapter one. And this passage is, this passage is gonna be broken in to two general thoughts. Standing firm in your faith from external forces. So standing firm in a culture that is moving away from God, which that's the US, by the way, if you weren't sure, the whole one nation under God thing, great sentiment. But we are an anti-Christ nation, okay? Is that okay to say? Uh, if you're not sure, I can, we can talk about it afterwards, but just know this, we are not a nation moving toward God. Nothing points to that. We're actually a nation moving away from God. And so this is how to stand firm in a culture that is moving away from God against external forces. And then moving into chapter two, it's standing firm actually in the church and how we operate with each other internal forces, okay? So let's, let's look at this. Starting in verse 27, it says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. So remember, the early church is under heavy persecution, right? So uh, the early church was founded by Jewish people. Remember, it started in Jerusalem and now it's spread. And so there are Jewish people. We saw in Acts chapter 8 that, the, that because of persecution, because of the death of Stephen, it said that, that the Jews were scattered abroad. And what is God doing? He's exporting the gospel, y'all. So he uses persecution to get them out of Jerusalem. They thought it was a great idea to spread. And now he's using persecution to make that take place, right? And so Jews that did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah were persecuting those who did believe he was the Messiah. Thus the crucifixion, right? And so, uh, so we see that there was persecution from their own people. And then you add in the, the Roman rule of the day. They ruled that whole region. And so they were afraid of this little fledgling group of people that were called Christians, little Christ's. 
that were living out the way of Jesus in a countercultural way, they wanted to smash that down. And so here's the deal. If you follow Jesus in that culture, here's one thing you knew for sure. You were going to die for your faith. It, w- it wasn't a maybe. It was just a matter of when you would be executed for your faith if you followed Jesus. And so Paul was reminding them that it was crucial to stay true to the way of Jesus no matter what. He says, whatever happens, no matter what. What does no matter what mean? No matter what. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty simple. I'm a, I'm a very simple guy, by the way. So uh, when I ask you a question, don't think it's a trick because I'm not that smart, all right? No matter what. He just said there are no options not to follow Jesus. He says whatever happens, you conduct yourself as one who is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning that Jesus saved you, he changed you, and you need to live a life that is worthy of that. Not in your own not, not in your own doing, not of yourself, but because Jesus has changed you. Last week he told them, verse 12, remember? Hey, listen, my chains, don't cry for me, Argentina, right? My chains are, are part of the exportation of the gospel. Remember we said he's chained to guards as he's writing this, and that 24-7 he's chained to a guard. Every six hours there's a change. So he's got four opportunities a day to lead these guards to Jesus. And now it says it's spreading throughout the palace guard. He says everybody in Rome is taking note uh, of the fact that he's living in chains. They're hearing about the life change that's taking place and it's emboldening them to live in their faith. Knowing that following Jesus is gonna cost them their life. What does that mean? The world is watching. The world was watching Paul in the middle of his suffering. What was he doing? He was raising a hallelujah, y'all. Y'all, we just sang that, right? I raise a hallelujah in the middle of my suffering, in the middle of my darkest moments. I raise a hallelujah. Do you do that, by the way? It's easy to sing in here. But do do you raise a hallelujah when you lose your job? Do you raise a hallelujah when you're in discord with your spouse? Do you raise a hallelujah on the other side of the shame of giving into your addiction? I mean, think about it. That is not the typical cry of the follower of Jesus. We'd rather run and hide, we'd rather check out. And he goes, no, the world's watching. And Paul's response to pain showed the size of his God, no matter what. So think about your own life. It might be a health challenge, a relational challenge, financial challenge, a political challenge. Let's double click on that one. So think about our culture today. In our current political climate, let me just paint a picture for you, all right? So I know that we live in Montgomery County, and so the first will probably be in the minority just uh, by rule that from 2016 to 2020, you were distraught over what was going on in the nation because somebody was in charge that you didn't like. And so for four years, you hated what was going on in our national government, right? And so you were glad uh, when, when in 2020, 
2021, a new president was on the scene, and now, probably by percentage, a greater portion of you are upset about what's going on right now in the nation, right? That you don't like what's going on. And so, uh, here's my question and my thought. First of all, if you have placed your hope in an election, you're in bigger trouble than you even know. Because elections do not change things. Because here's what I know for sure. Since 2016, our nation has been in chaos. And it's still in chaos. And there are a different person in charge today than was in charge 18 months ago. And we're still in the same chaos. So how do you conduct yourself in the middle of that? It's not whether things aren't going the way you think they should. The question is, how do you conduct yourself? Stick with me, right? Don't get up and leave. Um, here's the first question. Do people know you follow Jesus? So do you identify as a follower of Jesus? Not what church you attend, but do you follow Jesus? And do people know that? And then the question is, how do they know it? Do they know it because you told them or do they know it because of the product of your life? Those are two different things. So, Here's some things that I want to ask you. Do you soapbox? Are you a ranter? Um, do you name call? Right? We, we've coined a term that is named after a weather event. Snowflake. Right? And so now that's become a very popular name to call people that don't agree with you. It happens on both sides of the aisle. Right? Oh, you're such a snowflake. That just means you're a lightweight, uh, the kids say you're salty, all of that, all right? So do you name call? Um, do you get into arguments either in person or online? Does everyone know exactly how you feel and exactly where you stand politically, how you feel about COVID, how you feel about mask mandates? And here's the question, is that what they know about you? more than they know where you stand with Jesus. Because here's the problem for a whole lot of us in the room. The problem is people know more about our politics than we know, than they know about the person that we say we serve. And we're allowing politics to inform our relationship with Jesus instead of letting the way of Jesus inform our politics. That's a dangerous precedent. Because it'll change the way you live. And again, I mean, uh, I, I said this at 945, but uh, some of you are going to be shocked one day. You're going to get to heaven and you're going to realize that Jesus isn't a gun-toting, flag-waving American, right? He's Jewish, y'all. He's not white. So we just got to catch up and realize that maybe everything isn't okay in Oz and maybe there's something bigger to give our lives to than a political affiliation, Now, this doesn't mean that you can't have opinions. I've got opinions. I've got a lot of opinions. I've talked with some of you. You know where I stand politically. And again, I'll talk with you about my opinions anytime you ask. I'm not going to talk about them right here, right now. But if you want to know, I'm willing to tell you where I stand. I'm not afraid to have those conversations. But here's the thing. Your opinions can't overshadow Jesus. In your conversations, people should feel loved, 
honored, respected, encouraged, even in the middle of disagreement. See, the fruit of your life, what you say and how you live should look like Jesus. And so one last thing on that. The next person that is argued into the kingdom will be the first. You do not argue people into the kingdom. You're not going to argue somebody like, I'll just keep it in kind of the social media realm. So know this, I have, I have yet to see a thread where people are arguing back and forth and for someone to go, you know what, you're right, you've changed my mind. <laughs> Seriously, it's never happened. And sometimes I just read the threads, you know, with the Michael Jackson popcorn meme, right? Because uh, I'm like, oh man, this is getting good. <laughs> and, and I type responses that I don't send. And so, because uh, <laughs> Jesus won't let me. But I want you to know, they're sarcastic and they're awesome. But I don't, I don't send them. Maybe I'll get a burner account just to say all the things that... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that already happens, I, I know, but you're not gonna argue somebody into the kingdom. It just doesn't happen. But guess what? You can love them into the kingdom. And what if loving them through the middle of disagreement is the very thing that they go, whoa, what, what, what's going on here? I thought we were supposed to hate each other. I don't hate you, I love you. I disagree with you. Is there a possibility that you can disagree with someone's lifestyle, that you can even point to sections in Scripture that's like, hey, it's pretty clear that this is not the way of Jesus, but know, know this, I love you. I love you. And we can be friends whether we agree or not. And if you want to know more, we can have a conversation about it. But it doesn't have to get ugly. It doesn't have to turn into hate. So is anybody uncomfortable right now a little bit? I mean, snowflakes. <laughs> I'm joking. I just wanted to get that out, all right? I'm on a journey just like you are, all right? So look, he, he moves on and he says, stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. So what was Paul telling them? Man, we need to form a united front, y'all. We need to be on one page. We need to be working together on this, not watering down the gospel with compromise, not self-protecting, not just making it up as we go along. One spirit, one cause. And here's what's interesting. You know what they didn't have? This. I mean, just think about it. If you were living at Philippi at the time, this is a fledgling church, and maybe Maybe you had a scroll that had some sections of what we know as the Old Testament. Maybe. And it would just be one scroll for a whole village or town, right? So, so you're hanging on what little you have. And then you get a letter. Remember, this is just a letter from the apostle that, that planted this church. And so, man, you're pouring over it. Someone's reading it. You're listening. You're discussing. And then there's probably a scribe that is recreating it, writing it down, and sending it to another town. So that's all you got to go on. Remember, at this time, this, this movement called Christianity is about 30 years old. This is all brand new stuff. They're trying to live the way of Jesus, but they've got very little to go on. Why is that important? Because look at what we have today, y'all. We know the story from start to finish. 
We've got chapter and verse of anything that we can choke down that tells us how to live life. Uh, I even think Revelation, the book of Revelation, it was not written until 90 AD. It's 30 years from when John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, that was self-proclaimed, the disciple that Jesus loved, Jesus takes him into a vision where he sees the end. And he says, we win in the end. We know that they didn't. So what an advantage we have today in 2022, over 2,000 years later, to be able and look and go, hey, we have got this to guide our life. And, and don't raise your hand, but the question is, when's the last time you picked it up? You may or may not have brought your Bible with you today. That's cool. I would recommend it. I'm for it. But you know what I'm for even more? You get in the secret place tomorrow morning and you pour through this. Because if you really believe the words of life are contained in the words of this book that the people that went before us didn't have, what a privilege it is. So here's the thing. You don't have to just make it up as you go along. They were struggling with that in this culture, right? They're under intense persecution and they're wondering, you know, how do I do this? And all they had to go on was a few words from Paul and maybe some other small sections of scripture followed by, okay, what's the right thing to do? They had to rely on the Holy Spirit to speak to them and show them the way to live. And so today, you don't have to make it up as you go along. You don't have to, sorry, Oprah, live your truth. There is the truth and your opinion. And just because your opinion doesn't line up with the truth doesn't make it okay. Because we've got the complete word of God to inform our lives. And again, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. It's what we have right here. 2 Peter 1.3. It says, his divine power, the divine power of Jesus has given us what? Everything we need for a godly life. What is Everything. What is everything? everything. Again, everything. yeah, everything. There is nothing outside of the scope of what God wants to do in your life that he hasn't already informed you of. You just have to believe it and live it. Easier said than done, but it's pretty simple. Now look, verse 28. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you, this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. So he says, don't live in fear, but in confidence, because it shows the opposition that you are confident in the power of God. Maybe the biggest moniker of our culture today is fear, right? I mean, we're just a fearful people. And it's all over the place, it's on both sides of the aisle, it's in the media. I mean, we're afraid of everything. We're the most medicated nation on the planet. And so here's my question, as a follower of Jesus, what are you afraid of? If you really believe that Jesus wins in the end, if you really believe that he's given you everything you need for a godly life, is there anything really to be afraid of? Because at the end of the day, if you are living in his power, nothing can touch you. Nothing. 
Does that mean you won't get cancer? No, it just means that there is a transcendence that takes place in your mind that you live above your circumstances, that your circumstances no longer dictate your obedience, they no longer dictate your followership, but you are so convinced that Jesus has a plan for your life that nothing can touch you. I'll guarantee you that's where the Apostle Paul lived. And how do you live that? Well, it shows by your response to suffering and persecution. Again, we don't understand persecution in the U.S. We're, we're kind of callous to the fact that, that uh, so many people will die for their faith today in other parts of the world. And we don't think about it. We compartmentalize it. We can, we can say, oh, man, that's too bad for them. Glad I live in the home of the free and the land of the brave. But here's what I want you to know. If you follow Jesus, you will be persecuted. It will cost you something. And so if your faith isn't costing you anything, then you're probably not really living the way of Jesus. Your faith will cost you something. But now we certainly all get suffering, right? We get suffering because life is hard. And Jesus even told us that suffering is a part of the deal. John 16, he says, in this life, you will have trouble. What's trouble? It's hard things. And so some of you, things are good right now, but you've come out of a season of intense pain or you know it's coming, right? It's just a reality. And so it's not whether things get hard, but how you respond when they happen. So it's a changing of your mind. It's thinking in a new way. Paul talks about it with Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7 when he says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Other versions say, for God did not give us a spirit of fear or timidity. But then he says, but gives us power, love, self-discipline. Another version says, a sound mind. That he calls us to think in a new way. Even when things aren't working the way we should. It means in every situation, I respond with faith over fear. What is that? That is anti-cultural. It's counter-cultural. We don't respond with fear. We have faith that the power of God can transform us, that we don't have to live like that. And then Paul says, every time I do that, the enemy is reminded of his defeat. I love that part. Every time that I say yes to Jesus, every time I stand firm and I wish it were more than it is, but every time that I do, I'm literally stomping on the head of Satan and saying, you are already a defeated foe. And we see it in the book of Revelation. He knows he's lost. All he's got is propaganda. And so if he can keep you out of the kingdom of God, out of living the purpose that God has for you, he's won. If he can keep you living in fear, if he can keep you in hiding until the next election when you think everything will be safe to come out, he's won. When there's a greater assignment on your life. Now look, verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. <laughs> okay, 
Pump the brakes, Paul. So he says, okay, you saw me struggle in Philippi. Remember week one, he was in a Philippian jail. And remember the doors flung open while he and Silas were worshiping, but he didn't leave. And as a result, the Philippian jailer came to Christ. He saw that as an opportunity. Again, while he is in chains, the script is flipped and he gets the opportunity to be Jesus to the Philippian jailer and his whole family. I mean, that's pretty cool. And so he says, hey, you've already seen it and now you're hearing about it, but, but did you catch what he said? This is a little unnerving. He reminds them that suffering has been granted to you on behalf of Christ. Let that sit in the room for a minute. That God grants suffering to you. That means the thing that has hurt the most in your life, God has either caused it or allowed it in your life for his good, for his glory, for his purposes. That's hard. That's a hard truth. Because right now you're going through your deepest hurt and you're like, wait, you're saying God did that to me? Well, he at least allowed it. If we believe that God is sovereign, nothing takes him by surprise, then, then we've got to understand that, that what God is doing the work that he is doing is outside of our constructs of time, uh, outside of our constructs of what we think is, is acceptable for our lives. There's something that he wants to do. And he says, and he'll say it again in chapter three, um, you're called to share in the suffering of Jesus. He says it in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ and now it's no longer I that live, but Christ that lives in me. So if you follow Jesus, you gave up the rights to your life the day you said yes to Jesus. It's no longer about you. It's no longer about what you think you deserve. You have given your life. You died and now Jesus is alive in you and there's a new sheriff in town. He is the one that is setting the agenda. So... Paul's gonna get into this in more detail, but the concept here is that the gospel is lived out in your life largely by the way you suffer. In fact, one of the heresies of the American gospel and the reason that that's so hard for us to hear is because the American gospel says that following Jesus is the prosperous life that health and wealth follow following Jesus, right? Have you ever heard that? Super prevalent today. That man, you just, you just trust in Jesus and give me $1,000 and, and your life will instantly get better. That, that somehow you will actually live your best life. It'll be a prosperous, prosperous life. Uh, you'll be rich and you'll be healthy. And if you're not healthy, it's because of something you've done or not done. So, major problems, let me just poke just one giant hole in that. It's not in scripture, right? So that's the giant hole. If you read the Bible from start to finish, it is the story of a journey that God's chosen people, the Jewish race, keeps ending up in slavery for disobeying God. And you see it throughout the Old Testament. Really, very little of their journey is positive. 
It's usually them making bad decisions and end up enslaved to another nation. That was happening at the time that this letter was written, right? And so now you move into the New Testament, you're like, well, the New Testament is, is grace in Jesus and he saved us. That's great. But if you read the New Testament, everybody that wrote books of the New Testament all died horrible deaths. And so the problem is when you take the Bible and, you probably, and you're not using it as a template for 2022, you're trying to make it say, well, in 2022, I know all of those guys early on, man, they had to suffer, but thank God that now we no longer suffer as followers of Jesus. That's heresy because there's nowhere in scripture that points to it. Everything says the opposite. That, hey, if you really want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you your life. And Paul is telling us that, that listen, suffering, it's been granted to you by Jesus. Why? Because there's something that he's doing through that. And so he's writing in chains, remember that, he's in prison in chains, and he's saying that the proof of your faith is the fruit of your life. And that the fruit of your life is actually how you respond to pain. How you respond in peacetime, I mean, it's fine, but it's largely irrelevant. Everybody generally responds well when things are good. It's when the tough times come, where is the reservoir that you're responding from? In fact, maybe you hear us talk about living in your Ephesians 2.10 calling. We talk about it all the time. That before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for your life and in Christ, it's activated in you. Plans that before the foundation of the world, he made for you, right? We talk about that a lot. So what if, what if the path to your Ephesians 2.10 calling takes you directly to the crash side in your life? What if actually the pathway to living out your Ephesians 2.10 calling takes you into your deepest pain first? That he wants to take you into your deepest pain. He wants to heal that pain. He wants to resurrect you out of that pain and then use your story to bring himself glory. Think about that, that there is something either that you are going through currently or you have gone through and God wants to heal that hurt in your life because there are other people that have gone through or will go through the exact same thing. And so that is a part of your calling to go, hey, listen, I've been where you are and only Jesus has, has come in and changed my life. And because he has, now I have a new story and I want to tell you about it. And now you're an agent of healing in a broken, lost, dying world. Come on, y'all. Thank you, both of you. Okay, so, um, but, but, but here's the thing. Here's the truth of the matter. We don't really want that. Some of you are living in a fence over your hurt. And you're like, well, until I get mine... How dare God make me go through that? Well, Jesus kind of did it, didn't he? To the death. And he calls us to die. Die to yourself. Die to what you think you deserve. Some of you, the first thing you need to do this afternoon is call and seek forgiveness and reconciliation from somebody that you've been holding in offense. Why? Why? Because it's not okay as followers of Jesus. 
there's something you're holding on to, it's time to let it go because God has something for you. And it could be that you living in forgiveness could be the very thing that vaults you into the life that God has for you. And some of you are bristling right now because you're like, well, they don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, you didn't deserve God's forgiveness. So get in line. It's the essence of the gospel. Okay, so Paul's telling them to stand strong against the external culture. And now we move into chapter two. And as we move into chapter two, this will be brief. Um, He shifts toward the inner culture of the church. And so look at what he says in these four verses. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. And so several things he says there. First of all, in that first verse, he's making these if-then propositions, right? You know, if this exists in Christ, then it will exist in you. If Christ did this for you, then you will naturally exhibit these characteristics. These things are true of Christ and these things are true of you. Now, these are rhetorical questions. He's not really wondering if it's true of Jesus, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ. He's not really questioning that. He's just saying because of that. The word if is probably a bad translation because he's not questioning the goodness of Jesus in this. But what does he say? I mean, uh, there was one commentator that said, these are actually akin to saying, water is wet, fire is hot, rocks are hard. So it's kind of a duh moment. And so what he's saying is, in Christ, you should feel encouraged by him. In Christ, you should feel comforted by his love. His spirit should render tenderness and compassion in your life. So what is that painting a picture of? This is what you receive from Jesus. Okay, so it is a life living from Jesus, not for Jesus. Because here's the truth of the matter. Um, I'll just put guys in the spotlight right now that you hear this and you think, okay, tenderness and compassion. I did not get that chip, right? And your spouse would largely agree with you. And so your thought is, well, how can I be more tender and compassionate toward my wife? It's not about what you do. It's about what you receive from Jesus. And so you can go to re-engage, maybe learn some tips and tricks, which by the way, I highly recommend. Um, But that is not the end all. Because it's not what you do, it's what you receive. You receive tenderness and compassion from Jesus. He is the only one. Uh, Will Blair was in the last service and he's one of the stories out here on the story wall. And I would encourage you, go hit that QR code and watch his story because man, he's a guy that if you just look at him, uh, he he doesn't always smile and out there it's like, whoa, that is, man, I don't want to meet him in a dark alley. Uh, But then you start spending time with Will and the first time I met him, uh, he invited me to go to lunch with him at Gringo's and I sat down with him and he just began weeping, weeping. I'm not talking crying, I'm talking ugly crying for one reason, because Jesus had captured his heart. 
And he said, man, you don't know me at all. He's pretty tatted up. He's like, man, I've had a rough life. And, and, but Jesus has rearranged my life. Since your love got a hold of me, I'm a new creation. I'm forever changed. Mm. So then he says, be like-minded, the same love, one in spirit and mind. It's a call to the unified church. So look at it this way. You will never advance the gospel out there if you're not first living it out in here, right? The reason we are largely irrelevant to the culture is because when people look at the product of the church, there's so much infighting and disagreement going on here and turf wars, church versus church, that we're, we think we're doing some good trying to get clarity in all this and the world has just checked it out. We're done, we're not even listening anymore. And know this, you're going to lunch with a non-Christian friend of yours, and during the course of that lunch, you are literally gossiping about every one of their friends, and you can even call it a prayer request, and then you leave, and they are left feeling worse about themselves, and they're like, wow, I thought they were a Christian. Do you want to see the world transformed? It's a countercultural life. It's something Different, And so we got to get on the same page. We've got to start calling out things in love. We always speak the truth in love. I hope you feel so loved by me right now. I'm not judging you. You can do whatever you want. I'm trying to lay out for you the way of Jesus and the way that your mind and your heart can be transformed. But know this, if you never do, I'm still going to love you. I'm fun to hang out with, I promise you. And we can sit and we can laugh. You can razz me about the cowboys. You can change the lampshades in my office. Dave Shannon, I know you were a part of that. I'm not okay with it. Uh, but, uh, you know, at the end of the day, how you choose to follow Jesus is between you and Jesus. And what if that's the way that we lived? We were one in spirit and in mind, and we don't soft pedal the gospel. We don't dumb it down because we're afraid we're gonna offend somebody. We just speak the truth and speak it in love. And it's like, hey, this up to you and Jesus, but I love you. It's what I want for your life. The world is watching. They're watching. They're watching the church. And they're waiting for the church to actually be the church. What if, what if restoration became a place that we were known by our love? that we were defined by that. And I think we're a pretty loving bunch, but I don't think we've even scratched the surface. That we're willing to walk with people through hard things, even through disagreement. And that we're not known by our political affiliation, but we're known as followers of Jesus that transcend all of that. That there's something bigger. Ariel Durant once said, a great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. Is that a picture of the U.S. or what? Matthew 12, 25, a kingdom divided or a house divided against itself won't stand. Those are the words of Jesus. And this should be 
a wake-up call to the church to get on the same page. And I'm talking, it's got to start here before we start grabbing other churches. But uh, here's the thing. Uh, I'm about to drop my Bible. I'm so excited. So here's the thing. We need to get so excited about the opportunity of focusing on commonality and not distinctives. Of saying, hey, you love Jesus. I wouldn't do it that way. But at the end of the day, you love Jesus and I want to partner with you. And that's got to start right here. We should be known for the way we love, the way we promote peace, the way we don't promote fear but hope. And then finally, that's where we'll land. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Man, that would be great to read your kids tonight before they go to bed, right? I'm sure that you could use that as a great talking point. But, but here, here's the deal. The enemy of oneness is selfishness. The enemy of oneness is selfishness. Happens in marriage all the time, right? Some of you haven't talked to your spouse today. You're sitting next to them, but it's frozen cold because one or the two of you think you deserve something, and so you're going to freeze the other one out till you get your way. You know what that's called? Selfish. And it hurts oneness in marriage. Now, Paul is likely talking about the people in, in Philippians 1. Remember, they were preaching the gospel for their own selfish gain. They were envious and jealous of Paul. And so since he was in prison, they're like, oh, well, I'll step to the forefront. And so they were using the gospel as a way to further their own kingdom. But here's what we all know. It's what he knew. We all gravitate towards selfishness. You gravitate towards selfishness. You know that, right? I'm not, everybody, nod your head. Yeah, you, the person in your seat, you gravitate towards selfishness. If you're not sure, ask your spouse, ask your kids, and they'll be like, mm, yeah, actually, yeah. Man, the struggle's real. I struggle with selfishness. I want my way. And what does Paul say? Value others above yourselves. Look to the interests of others. So the way of Jesus is an others-centered life. How are you doing with that? Right, if that's all you get out of today, it's like, ugh. And here's what I want you to know. You come by it honestly. And it's impossible to accomplish without Jesus. Impossible. My favorite passage of scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Um, you know, he says things like, hey, You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So based on that, how many of you are adulterers in the room? Don't raise your hand. But uh, do I think about it. All of us, men, women, children, all of us, right? I mean, that's who we are. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. I say to you, if you've got anger with your brother or sister, you've already committed murder. What? So Jesus has taken the Ten Commandments and he's raising the bar saying, listen, you thought the requirements were hard. Now I'm telling you in the kingdom of God, it's impossible. And then you know what he did? He died to make it possible for you because you can never do it on your own. That's why you need Jesus. He died to forgive what you could never accomplish on your own. How cool is that? He died to make you selfless because you'll never get there on your own. You may have moments 
where you go, huh, I finally arrived. And as soon as you say that, you're done, right? <laughs> That's arrogance. Oh, so close. It's impossible without him. So let me close. Uh, think about the flow of the passage. He says, no matter what happens, no matter what, conduct yourself as a follower of Jesus. So here's three things. Uh, number one, in the face of persecution and suffering, show the world how big Jesus is by your response. So what would it be like to give a countercultural response when things aren't going your way? It won't be the norm. But what if it's the very thing that makes somebody lean forward? What if they know you in a certain way and, and they've already kind of written you off because they're like, oh, that guy, I heard him say something about being a follower of Jesus, but he's the most hateful, ranting individual I know. And then in a conversation with them, you flip the script in some way and you follow the way of Jesus. It's gonna make them lean forward. When they know that something hard is happening in your life and yet somehow you're like, yeah, this is really hard, but man, I know God's good. I know he's gonna work through this. I don't know how. It's definitely difficult. But man, I trust God. Who says that? What if it was you that said that? You can't, but Jesus can. Responding in a countercultural way. Number two, don't respond with fear, but exhibit faith. Let me jump back on the politics bandwagon. Here's the deal. I get it. Things are tough right now. Or things were tough a year and a half ago. And guess what? They're gonna be tough again. What if instead of being afraid of the political tsunami, what if you just said, hey, God's bigger than all this. And by the way, the Bible continues to say that we're moving in this direction, not in this. And so because of that, I can say, hey, while things are moving down, I'm looking up because I know who wins in the end. And it begins to uh, transcend what you think you deserve. Exhibiting faith instead of fear. It's all gonna be okay. And then number three, we change the world by showing them a focused, united church that is unified by the love and compassion of Jesus. Here's the bottom line. When I think about this, I'm just reminded that the local church is actually the hope of the world. That when Jesus was thinking about how he was gonna change the world, he told Peter pre-crucifixion, he says, hey, I'm renaming you Rock, Peter, Rock. His name was Simon. Now it's Peter. And he says, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And then in Acts chapter two, he fills him with the Holy Spirit and 3,000 people come into the kingdom in one day through a coward. It's possible through Jesus. And, and then all of these little churches start popping up all over the planet. And 2,000 years later, you're sitting here because the church is the hope of the world. It is his plan to change the world. So listen, we're, we're marred. We have scars. We have done horrible things in the name of Jesus. And Jesus still looks and said, man, I hate that you did that, but you're still the hope of the world. We're all he's got to work with. Yikes. And yet he loves us. He believes in you more than you could ever imagine. He's got a calling on your life. And what he wants is your yes. He wants your obedience to say, hey, listen, I'm ready. Take me into my pain. 
Take me into it. Uh, heal me once and for all because I know that there's an assignment on my life that you have for me. And I want to live in that. And I want to be unified with my brothers and sisters that I'm locked arms with on a day-to-day basis. And I want to love people and have compassion for people that disagree with me. It's so hard, y'all. It's so hard.